the Dutch did really well to come back on us, but it was a uh, we've had a lot of trust in our crew and working together to make sure we kept our cool under that and um, like you said, keep our bow ball in front. Your best mates are also your main competition, so it's really interesting in the fact that your essential main support network is also the person that you're trying to beat to get into that seat in the boat. Yeah, I think it was an advantage for us and it was nice that there was no real form guides there. We could just fly under the radar and, and go about our, 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 um, our do our thing and, and it ended up working out well for us and managed to cross the line in France. I think one of the great things was looking at the, the new sports that had come in and the camaraderie amongst them. Maybe it was because they were so young, um, but the reaction to the skateboarding and also to the BMX freestyle, I mean, the way they got around each other. To Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Our mission is to protect the integrity of sport and the health and welfare of those who participate in Australian sport. Hello and welcome to Sport Integrity Australia's Clean and Gold podcast series as we reflect on the Tokyo Olympics and look forward to the Tokyo Paralympics. Alongside me is the Triple Olympic Gold Medalist from Athens and Sport Integrity Australia's Assistant Director Engagement, Petrea Thomas. And Petrea, we've just had the Tokyo Olympics. Let's put in a highlight for you. I think, Tim, uh, probably the, the highlight for me is actually not performance related. It was it was really the spirit in which the games were conducted and the sportsmanship that was displayed. The um, I, sp- I think, you know, as athletes, you can tend to be very, very focused and live in your own little world. Mm. Uh, but I think, you know, over the last 18 months or so with it, where the whole world's been affected by COVID, it's it's really uh, developed, I think, a new level of appreciation for, for not just athletes, but for everyone, that we're all just humans and we're all just there trying to do our best. And I think that really showed in, in the spirit and performances of the athletes at the Olympics from all different countries, uh, that they were just really grateful and joyful that they were able to be there and compete. The thing is, too, that um, kids watching the television and, and watching the sportsmanship, that, that that's a great advertisement, isn't it? it it really flows down. It, it carries down to, to their own performances as kids and they realise that you know, good sportsmanship is part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, uh, for me, that's the, the biggest part of it is, mm. is participating in your sport, um, you know, appreciating what everyone's there to do, respecting what they're there to do and, and just doing their best. And, and I think that was really on display at the Games. Good on you. Yes, sir. Uh, was uh, terrific to see. Now on this podcast, we're going to be speaking with Australia's Olympic gold medalists in rowing from the men's and women's fours, Alex Purnell and Lucy Stephan. And for an overview on Australia's performance at the Olympics, we'll be joined by veteran commentator Glenn Mitchell, who commentated at four Olympic Games. Joining us is the Tokyo Olympic gold medalist in the women's four, Lucy Stephan. And Lucy made her Olympic debut in the women's eight in Rio, the Tokyo Olympics, Lucy combined with Jessica Morrison, Rosemary Popper and Annabelle McIntyre to win gold in the four. Alongside me is Petrea Thomas and Petrea, you watched the race, uh, an incredible finish in the end, wasn't it? Yeah, it was amazing. It was a bit nerve-wracking watching the girls. It was quite a close race, but um, they, they managed to keep their, the, the front of the boat in, in, in the lead, which is all that matters. And Lucy, um, did you have a chance yet to, to reflect on that race, uh, given it happened last week? Yeah, a little bit. Um... 
obviously yeah like you said it's, it's been a few days and I'm day two now hotel quarantine so I've had a bit of time to think by myself um but yeah you, you know you have your race plan and you hope it, it's executed perfectly and I guess we'd kind of hoped obviously that it wouldn't be as close as it was but um I guess for us we we did the work and we kept trying to push away and I think um you know the Dutch did really well to come back on us but it was a we've had a lot of trust in our crew and working together to make sure we kept our cool under that and um like you said keep our bow ball in front. You made your Olympic debut in 2016 at Rio this time around I would imagine a little bit different because of the COVID restrictions no crowds but you had a lot of people watching back home how surreal an experience was it for you rowing out there in Tokyo? Yeah I think um it's actually a bit of a joke because I got the uh, late call up for Rio and I was actually talking to my friend the other uh, last night and because I got the late call up, I didn't have a very good preparation and the rowing wasn't great, but obviously had a good last week of partying and whatnot. And I think um, then this Olympics, obviously rowing has been amazing, but I've missed out on, I guess, being around the crowds and um, being able to celebrate after. So all in all, I've had one complete Olympics, which has been good. Um but, yeah, I think it, it is tough that obviously the crowds couldn't be there and couldn't have loved ones. But I guess we'd been the lead up with our preparation. We'd focused on, we'd had three simulation regattas where we'd practice and we obviously didn't have crowds at those simulation regattas. So if anything, maybe it potentially worked in our favour in that fact. Being in Australia, we couldn't go over for the World Cup, so we didn't have that experience there. Um but I guess as well, I think we're just so excited that the Olympics were going ahead. So I honestly didn't really think too much about the fact that um, those things that you usually have at the Games weren't there. Lucy, you, you've mentioned that obviously the Games was a different experience due to COVID, but you obviously uh, also had a, a little bit of a disrupted preparation in terms of the last few weeks leading into the Games with the scramble to get out of Sydney. How was that yeah, for absolutely. you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think honestly... Where it's kind of like, okay, what else have you got? Um, we're just so used to adapting that it. I don't really think it really phased us at all. Like maybe there was the day, the day after it was a little bit of a come down, but um, yeah, it was kind of. I think in these times, you you prepare yourself for anything, and there's always a possibility that could happen. So when it happened, it was like, all right, um, let's pack our bags and get out of here. So we found out. I think it. 7 p.m. that night, we were planning to fly out the next day, but at 7 p.m. that night they said we need to get you out of Sydney because obviously all of Sydney was going into a lockdown at 1 a.m. So we jumped in our cars, drove to Canberra and then flew out from Canberra the next morning. Obviously had the COVID test the next day to make sure that we were, you know, obviously that was a massive thing to not infect anywhere else in Australia and we were all negative. Um, So, yeah, I think for us, it, like I said, we're so used to adapting. So it really, I don't think it really took any skin off our nose at all. This event uh, hasn't been in the Olympics for 30 years. You come out and win it. Does that add to the experience for you at all? Um, Honestly, no, not really. I think I definitely felt I've been in the four for the last four since 2017. Um, In 2017, I definitely noticed it because it was kind of the first time at the World Champs that it was classified as an Olympic-class boat. So you had countries prioritising it. You had a lot more entries than what usually the women's four had obviously when it was an Olympic class boat and the top sweepers would obviously usually be in the four or the pair. Um, so 2017 was definitely, I think for me, made me realise that this 
that was very different. Um, and then by the time coming through to the Olympics, it almost feels like to a certain point it's always been there. Um, I think the competition is just still so high and countries are really trying to come out and have a good crack. And I think that that's, for me, made me, yeah, I I guess in a way it's kind of special. But um, honestly, like I guess in my mind it's kind of a gold medal is a gold medal and um, to be a part of, I guess, the first boat to do it in the women's four in, well, the last time was um, 92, I think. So, yeah, in almost 30 years, it's obviously pretty special, but you don't really think of that, I think, lining up on the start line. Lizzie, you're part of the four and obviously being a team sport, it takes a lot of uh, a lot of time together and a lot of coordination to, to get the result. Just just how much time do you spend together and, and how much effort do you have to put into, I suppose, um, being in unison when you're out on the Warner? Yeah, I think we were really lucky with this group, like the four of us as a whole. We're kind of all, we're already mates. Well, everyone at the centre is kind of mates because there's 25 girls and we've all trained together now for five years almost so you're already quite close and you already develop quite a lot of respect for one another um and so when we kind of got named in this four that respect definitely carried on we obviously had the challenge of the double up so Annabelle and Jess were they also raced in the pair um and so whenever they trained the pair we trained the four so that added another massive element to the fact of um I guess it's it's putting your ego aside when you're in the pair and and then being able to band together to make a really strong four. And I think we did a really incredible job of that. Um, unfortunately, the racing schedule changed, which meant that the semi-final that was meant to be the day before our four final, it was pushed to after our four final and already having raced the final and doing the medal podium. And there was a lot of other things going on, but they missed out on the final of the pair. Um which was disappointing, but I think obviously the when you've got a gold medal in the four to fall back on, it's um pretty helpful. But yeah, I think we worked really well as a unit, and that was kind of always our thing. It was making sure we communicated, and communication was the biggest thing. And I guess saying how we feel and making sure we're being honest with one another. And um, at the end of the day, it's I guess like with any boat, every person in that crew wants to win. So if at times you can be a bit assertive or a little bit aggressive or maybe say the wrong thing in the wrong matter, it's not from a lack of you don't care, it's because you almost care too much. So I think when you can remember that, it's because they want to win so badly, it definitely puts perspective on the conversations that you're having. You mentioned the crew and the wider crew uh, to a certain degree there with the 25-member squad. But just have a look, I guess, beyond that. I mean, it it takes a family, doesn't it, to – to get you through, it takes a lot of people to to get a four onto the water at, at Olympic Games, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think um, we're really lucky in the fact that obviously all of us in the centre, for, for the most part, we all have incredibly support networks outside the centre in terms of our family and loved ones. But when you change to a centralised program, which is what they did at the end after the Rio Games, we all moved to Penrith and, and none of us are originally from Penrith. So you're all moving away from your loved ones who are usually your main support network. Um, obviously, the Sydney girls are lucky in the fact that their family's only an hour away, but it's still an effort to go see them. So it's a really interesting dynamic when you have around 25 girls and then between five to 10 support staff of, you know, your physio, your massage, gym, like strength coach, sports scientist, and then we have three 
full-time coaches at the centre. And then you've got, you know, you, your best mates are also your main competition. So it's really interesting in the fact that your essential main support network is also the person that you're trying to beat to get into that seat in the boat. Um, and I think we do do an incredible job as a as a squad to be there for one another while we're also trying to, um, I guess, beat each other. It's um, an incredible dynamic and, and I think we've done a really good job to make it work. But, yeah, we are very lucky for the girls and, and the support staff that we've had in the centre to get us to where we've got now. Lucy, you're, you're from the country and, you know, obviously – You've um, had different opportunities to, to sort of reach your potential. Um, but what does it mean coming from being a country girl to becoming a world champion and now an Olympic gold medalist? Uh, pretty special. I think, um, you know, for me growing up in Nil, it was when I was growing up, we're in the middle of the drought. So Nil's half an hour away from Dimboola, which is they usually have a Dimboola regatta once a year. But when I was growing up, that didn't exist because there was no water on the river. Um, and I think as well, you don't have the luxury of seeing those people around you often go off to do sport and amazing things, especially a sport like rowing. Um, obviously, the Wimmera District produced some really great football players, AFL players over the years. But um, Olympians in terms of that, obviously, we've got Horsham and stuff, but I think I'm one of the first Olympians from Neil. Uh, so it's obviously pretty special, I guess, for me to go away and, and they've supported, like Neil as a community has supported me until I've to got to get to where I've gotten. Um, but I'm pretty excited, I think, to go back and just kind of go back to the schools and see the kids there and show them my medal. And I guess it's that it always helps when you see people before you do it and you kind of realise I can go do that too. Um, and it's about having mentors. And I think in it, it's um, just from the number of less people um, there's always a there's always a hard chance to actually find those mentors to really push you and and grow and I was lucky enough to have a few through my time in Nil and then on obviously onwards to Ballarat. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of excited to go back and be one of those people to help to help push and guide those young kids to hopefully achieve their goals, whatever they may be. Like I always say, I think passion is the most important thing, and as long as you're passionate about something that you can achieve, and whether that's music or writing or any kind of sport or really anything that you want to do as long as you have that kind of drive and passion and yeah only three years till the next olympics now yeah that's it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, just on a lighter note to finish it you're going to be on an australia post commemorative stamp um Mm -hmm. that's pretty special isn't it i imagine the whole of neil will be coming out buying that stamp once it comes on the market yeah, um, hopefully. I've already um, – I think you can put your orders in from it. And I got a phone call from my dad um, last night saying, Luce, how many stamps do you want? And I was like, Dad, I'm probably not going to send post-its. Like, <laughs> it's a bit of a – like, I guess you could send out your bills and just put, a, like, a stamp of you on there. But I, they probably don't realise that that's me sitting there at the end of the photo. Um, but, yeah, it's – um obviously, it's pretty special. You know, you grow up looking at these stamps. It's I, I can remember – you know, when Kimmy um, Brennan got her stamp um, last Olympics and it's it's always a, a pretty special thing and it is one of those things I think when you look at when you're a kid and you're like, oh, imagine one day if I can be on a stamp for winning an Olympic gold medal. So it is pretty special. Um, 
We'll see how many people around Neil race to buy them, but I wonder if the Neil Post Office will get a few extra stamps just because. But, um, yeah, no, nah, it's definitely it's definitely a privilege for sure. That's great. Lizzie, Tim mentioned, obviously, uh, the next Games is only a short three years away now. Is is that on the horizon for you? Yeah, look, I, um, I've i got to think about it. I've got my boyfriend's back um, in Melbourne and we've been doing long distance now for five years. So... He's been amazing and obviously um, he's been incredibly supportive. But, I, yeah, I'm not saying yes and I'm not saying no. I think I love the sport and I definitely think um, looking at what what our squad is capable of, I definitely think we can go and, and dominate next Olympics as well. And like you said, it's only three years away um, in the perspective of when you've just done a five-year Olympic cycle, that's almost half the time. So... <laughs> It's um, it's definitely, it's definitely tempting. That's for sure. Good on you, Lucy. Congratulations. Uh, looking forward to seeing you on a stamp as well. Thanks very much for joining us on Onside oh, Clean and Gold podcast. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Well, that was uh, Lucy Stephan. Also with us is Alex Purnell from the Men's Four, which held off a fast-finishing Romania to win gold in Tokyo. Alex combining with Spencer Turren, Alex Hill and Jack Hargraves to end the British dominance in this event. And Alex Purnell is with us now. Alex, have you had time to process what has taken place at the Olympic Games? Um, I think I have now. I've just entered day three of quarantine. Um, So we raced last Wednesday so it's been almost a week now. Um, it's it's slowly slowly gotten there, but certainly certainly didn't quite process it when we crossed the line and and and, and the medal ceremony. Um, it was surreal at the time, but yeah, it's slowly slowly coming together and um, it's exciting reflecting on it. And I've I've watched the race a couple of times and um, yeah, the I can't Brit- believe how quite- yeah the British losing control of their steering yeah with about five hundred like- to go quite incredible, isn't it? It's, it is unusual. Um, they were what we considered our main competition before that race. Um, we always had eyes on them. I didn't. I didn't really know what. I didn't notice the steering at all. I only heard about it afterwards. Um, but uh, I crossed the line, looked to my right, and saw we were ahead of the British in Italy, and thought how good. And then I looked to my left and saw Romania very close, and I had absolutely no idea about them. So <laughs> I didn't even notice them sneak up on the outside there. So I was very, very relieved that our bow ball was in front, but um, no, we had a great race and got out really how we wanted to ahead of the field and, and held on in the dying stages. So absolutely stoked. Alex, your brother uh, Nick was there rowing in the eight as well. How, how special was it to share the, the Tokyo experience with him? Uh, it, was, it was really special. I, um, I was in year 12 when Nick represented Australia in the eight in London. And I managed to um, watch it with my family over in London. Um, and I, I guess watching him, I always wanted to go to the Olympics um, at some point in my life at that stage, but I probably wasn't sure if I was good enough. Um, so I sort of plugged away and, and learned a lot with him because I, after school, trained in Sydney with him for a lot of that time. I was, I was at uh, at Sydney University with him. He was still in the senior team. I was in the underage team, so I learned a lot with him. Um, and it got to the point where I wasn't sure if I would actually be representing Australia alongside him. Um, but we both were in the National Training Centre the last few years down in Canberra and then 
being selected in, I was selected in the four this year and he was selected in the eight, we knew that that was a reality. So um, it was really special. Um, he was actually catching the bus to train and get ready for the rapid charge of the men's eight when the uh, when we crossed the line in the four final. So I managed to give him a – he gave me a big hug when I got off the water and that was – Oh, that was really special. So, yeah, it was it was fantastic. Uh, did you have an advantage to a certain degree because uh, you were based in Australia, the rowing continued elsewhere, you weren't able to compete against them, you were able to see what they were doing, but they couldn't see what you were doing in Australia. Was that an advantage to you that you were a little bit of out of sight, out of mind, even though you'd only lost one race in that Olympic cycle? Um, I, I think it was an advantage. Uh, I know that the other three guys in my crew are really, really good racers. So, um, you know, you know what you'll get when you, when you come up to the start line. So I was really confident in their ability, even though you didn't have, um, the racing experience or the, uh, the racing, yeah, your racing experience internationally the last 18 months. Um, I always knew they, those guys would be up for it. Um, and I guess when those world cups are on this year and the European champs last year and this year that we weren't racing and, um, those three other three in my boat were world champions for 2017 and 18. So I think um, other other crews didn't really know what we were doing, and they were probably always in the back of their mind. Um, so I think we could sort of fly under the radar, at, and at the same time simulate the races that were going on overseas in Australia, where um, we were pretty lucky with any restrictions or lockdowns during that time that we were able to get on the water and and, and do our best to to emulate what they, or simulate what they were doing. So, yeah, I think it was an advantage for us. Um, and it was nice that there was no real for, form guide so yeah, we could just fly under the radar and, and go about our, 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 um, our do our thing. And, and it ended up working out well for us and managed to cross the line in front. So, yeah. Alex, as, as much as training is the hard part of sport, um, do you think that sort of extended block of training that you guys obviously have had back in Australia in preparation for the Games helped your preparation? I think so. Um, it definitely, maybe at the time, it was a bit tough. Um, we, we sort of formed together, or the whole rowing, Australian rowing team, both men and, men and women, came back together in July 2020. So it was exactly 12 months out. Um, and with no real competition internationally until the Olympics, we knew that it was very unlikely we'd be competing before the Olympics yet actually before the um, Olympics this year. Uh, we, we always knew that would be a challenge, but I think it just gave us more time to gel this combination together because I, I joined the crew very uh, – I only joined the crew last year. So, um, yeah, I think it did – I think it did ultimately benefit us. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was ideal for us, I think. With about 150 metres to go and you're, you're drawing energy from and inspiration from everywhere – you had one of the crew yelling out Raiders, Raiders. You had another yelling out <laughs> Father's name. Uh, can you tell us what was going on in that chaotic last last uh, 150 to 200 metres? Uh, yeah, um, I guess at that point when, when everything's hurting so much, you, you, <laughs> sorry, um, you, you try and draw inspiration from somewhere and just try and find that extra, that extra something. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was responsible for yelling... Um, Spencer's father's name, Vic. Uh, I don't quite know why I did, but 
I, I often can say something towards the end of the race, just a, a word or two, and, and I managed to get something. And um, yeah, the Raiders thing is Spencer's, Spencer's team. So I don't, I don't know whether I, I sort of mentioned that or that came into his mind, but um, I think it's something that I've yelled at him before in the last 12 to 18 months. So it probably popped up in his mind. And um, when I, when, when, I was yelling something at the end, but yeah, when, when everything's aching, you just try and find something else. And um, that might have been enough to, to hang on to Romania, who would point through behind. So, Were you yeah, hal- uh, almost uh, hallucinating, <laughs> you know, when you're sort of yelling out stuff, you're not even sure where it where it's coming from. And That's and, right. Yeah, yeah. You, you do sort of get people's, that, that tunnel vision in the, you can't see very well. You, you can see the boys have changed, um, the boy colour, the, the lane colours changed from yellow to red. So you know you're in the last 250 metres and you're just counting down the strokes and waiting for that buzzer to go. Um, so, yeah, you just try and draw on anything and just something to give you that little extra push across the line. So um, it's a good story and, and it, it is true, but, uh, yeah, it's just something that you you try and you just try and get that little extra bit of energy, especially when everyone was coming so hard at us at the end um, and we threw it out there. So just had to hang on. Alex, you had to deal with a lot of uncertainty in the lead up to Tokyo, but then when you actually arrive at the games, then there's a typhoon heading <laughs> heading your way. So obviously that created a bit of um, havoc with the schedule. How did, how did you cope with that on top of everything else? Uh, I think I can speak on behalf of every um, Australian rowing team member in the last four years that we've been pretty used to, to um, I guess, challenges or delays or anything like that because... Uh, a lot of us were a part of the 2017 World Championship rowing team that um, was held in Florida, USA, and a huge hurricane hit in September that year, and that was just two weeks before heading out. So we, our flight was delayed, and there was uncertainty whether the event would go ahead, and luckily it was. So that's that's another example of where um, weather impacted and uh, weather impacted the schedule of the results. So um, a lot of us were pretty prepared for for changes in schedule. Um, it didn't actually impact, impact us at the Olympics because our final was still on the same day. But uh, I know for everyone else that had to change, like the men's quad and women's quad as well, and as well as the eights, they were all all um, pretty used to, to schedules being changed um, and with COVID as well. So I think I think it was all pretty well handled for, across the board, and um, we're all pretty adaptable. All the rowers are so. I think it was just, oh yeah, we're used to it. We we know that this is coming. Um, we can handle this. So it didn't it didn't change too much. Um, but credit to Fiza and and World Rowing and the um, Olympic Committee for being proactive and and uh, seeing the the weather come in and knowing that um, they need to do something and, and make a decision pretty early on, which would wouldn't have been easy. So um, I think it was just well organised and and a good decision in the end. Do you think it's a bit of our Aussie laid back sort of spirit that helps us cope with those uncertainties? And obviously everyone's been dealing with uncertainty around the world, but I think in general, Australians seem to be a bit more casual and relaxed and just go with the flow. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a, a good point. Um, I just think, yeah, we may, we, we probably come, we probably uh, look at those situations and think, well, we can't, we can't do anything about it and everyone uh, pardon the pun. Everyone's in the same boat, so uh, everyone's 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 got the same situation there. So I think yeah, that, that probably laid back style would help us compared to other other countries. That's probably a um, a, a characteristic that's generally across all Australians. So yeah, 
I think that, that, that did help us. Have we thought about um, continuing, uh, given that the next Olympics in Paris only three years away? Yeah, uh, it's definitely that is definitely tempting for myself and others. Um, definitely going to have a, a bit of a break after the extra year. I think the extra year training as well has made it probably just that even more important to have a bit of a break. But um, I haven't made a de- definite decision, but probably more likely than not, I'll, I'll be coming back at some stage in the next couple of years. And um, hopefully, hopefully we'll be there in Paris, hopefully selected. So yeah, uh, it's, um, I think there's still fire in the belly. Good on you, Alex. And uh, no doubt, once you get out of the bubble, a chance to, to celebrate with your family and friends. Thanks very much for joining us today on Onside's Clean and Gold podcast series. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. You're listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Hello, Tim Gable and Patria Thomas with you for Sport Integrity Australia's Clean and Gold podcast series. Australia's Olympic athletes have been lauded for their performance in Tokyo, Australia finishing in sixth place behind the US, China, Japan and Great Britain with 17 gold, 7 silver and 22 bronze. And it wasn't just about medals in terms of praise for Australia's performance with the likes of Cedric Dubler, Rowan Browning, Sam Kerr and Peter Bowl receiving plenty of plaudits for their performance as much as their sportsmanship. Glenn Mitchell is joining both Patria and I. Glenn commentated at four Olympic Games for the ABC. Glenn, firstly, what was your highlight of the Olympic Games? I think Jess Fox for mine, Tim. Um, I think everything in sport... Uh, that has a backstory just means so much more. So it was probably a photo finish between Peter Boll and, and Jess Fox. But I just thought the the way that she was a 10-time world champion and that the one thing that had eluded her was that Olympic gold medal. And when she won bronze in the, the K1 class and the slalom, and it just looks like looked like perhaps that it was going to slip by. But, you know, just the, the fact that she and her family was incredible. Her father commentated her mother Miriam's her coach so the three of them were instrumental in getting the C1 slalom onto the agenda and then for her to break through and and win that elusive gold medal it was the last thing that she needed on her her resume so for me that was the highlight followed closely by the the story and the performance of Peter Bowl. Just on the Peter Bowl story quite an incredible backstory and I guess it was more than a, a track and field race in the end wasn't it? It was, there's no doubt about that, and and you're right. I, I think looking at uh, some figures today, uh, I think it was the second most watched event on Australian television, uh, and the three days between him qualifying from the semi-final to the final, uh, everyone was talking about Peter Bowl, and, and we know it is such a topical thing at the moment. Um, uh, the state of refugees and and the, what is happening here in Australia. I don't think people wanted to necessarily politicise it, but I think it was a reminder. And I saw so much on social media where people were saying, "Well, look what refugees can contribute to our society if they're given the the opportunity." But yeah, to to flee uh, a war torn Sudan uh, with his family on his four, and then go into Egypt and then make his way to Australia and virtually stumble into middle distance running by accident. Uh, again, it was one of those things that just had a tremendous backstory. He didn't win a medal like Jess Fox, but he certainly has shown that he has the talent going forward with a, a bit more preparation. But I think it was just the whole backstory that, uh, I guess, captured the imagination of most people in Australia that follow sport. Glenn, you've um, commentated at four games in the past and obviously observing these ones quite closely. What was, uh, I suppose, what was one of the, the key, um, not not moments, but takeouts for you of how these games uh, differed from other games in the past? 
Well, I must admit, Patria, even for someone who loves Olympic sport, I was somewhat ambivalent in the lead-in to the Tokyo Games. I think it mainly focused on two things. One, there was going to be no crowds. And secondly, the actual, the native Tokyo people didn't actually want the Games there. Every survey that you saw, uh, it was always the majority of people that, that wished the Olympians wouldn't turn up. So I had a, a degree of ambivalence going in. But one thing that did surprise me, and I guess it, it now has a bit to do with, with modern technology and the likes, even though there weren't a lot of people at the stadium or at the swimming venue with directional microphones and things like that, I was watching the swimming, and, and while they were focusing in on the eight lanes and you didn't see down the far side empty seat after empty seat, the noise that was being generated by the teammates of those that were competing actually almost took away from the fact that it was a sanitised games. I mean, every now and then you'd see a wide shot of the pool that would remind you there was no one there. But I was pleasantly surprised how watching the Olympic Games, uh, it didn't really um, stand out to me so much. It might have been different if you were there looking at an empty stadium. But yeah, it, it, to me, it just it, it changed my perception uh, in some ways in regard to having crowds at venues. There's all the talk where I come from in Western Australia now about whether the AFL Grand Final should be played here because they might have a very limited crowd at the MCG. But, yeah, that, that, that was the thing that really surprised me, Patria, is it didn't seem to detract from my enjoyment or interest the fact that there was no one there. Just on the basketball, Glenn, obviously high expectations going into this tournament given that both the men's and the women's sides had beaten the United States in lead-up events. But have a look at the performance of the Australian men's side in particular, led by Paddy Mills. The fact that they'd won the first ever medal by an Australian men's basketball team at the Olympic Games, how significant was that? I think hugely so. I mean, if anyone didn't see either on social media or live when it happened, Andrew Gaze's reaction on the Seven Network coverage, I mean, you could see for people that had had set the, the, the trend, and if you like, he said that he felt that himself and other past Olympians in basketball had their DNA attached to that particular result. It was fascinating to hear him talk about his father, Lindsay, who competed very early on at the Olympic Games, that, you know, back in 1956, when they sent a a basketball team to the Melbourne Olympics because we were host. There was only about two, 300 registered players in the whole of the country. And, you know, we've been so close and yet so far. I mean, Andrew Gaze in three of his five Olympics in, um, what was it, 88, 96 and 2000, made the last four, but they were beaten in semifinals and then didn't win a medal in the bronze medal playoff. So I think it was a terrific thing. I mean, Paddy Mills was exceptional. And I think... We've known for a long time he's an exceptional basketballer. In fact, FIBA, the world governing body, put him in their their all-star five at the end of the games. But not just the way he played with his 42 points in that bronze medal deciding game, but I think the way he conducted himself, the way he spoke afterwards, also um, paid homage to those that had come before him, obviously spoke about um, the Indigenous um, flavour of where he comes from and hoping that that will then broaden uh, Indigenous um, interest and, I guess, involvement in basketball. But no, I thought that was a, a real stellar moment for a sport that for a long, long time, you know, sat well down in the pecking order behind the likes of Australian footy and, and rugby league in this country. Yeah, that's a that's a great um, point, Glenn. I, it's one of my favourite moments of the games, actually, is watching the, the Boomers take bronze there. Um, my husband was involved with the Boomers team in 2000, and I got a little bit of a glimpse of, of what it meant to them to try and get up on that podium. So it was wonderful to see uh, see them do that and the, the wonderful leadership of Paddy Mills that you've just talked about there. It was uh, absolutely terrific. Um, 
Glenn, just wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of a, a social point of view, uh, the fact that it, it did lift a nation uh, during mm. COVID, um, we're talking here about Australia, obviously the, it was within a backdrop of Tokyo being shut down, Japan being shut down because of COVID, quite an incredible situation, the likes of which we may never see again. But mm. the impact that it had on the Australian public, it just uh, I thought it was incredible. Uh, given the time zone was quite favourable as well, mm. people in lockdown looking for, for something and they, and they found it with the Olympic Games. Exactly. I mean, it's probably not a, a great saying, but, you know, they had a quite literally a captive audience. I mean, people weren't getting out of their homes in, in New South Wales. Obviously, at times, Queensland, Victoria were in lockdown during the period of the, the Olympic Games. So uh, what better way for people to be able to occupy themselves and indeed be able to, I guess, find themselves smiling, giving them something to smile, something to follow, something to be appreciative of at you know, a time where a lot of people down the east coast of Australia have been particularly hard hit. So you're quite right. I mean, the time zone was very, very helpful as well. Um, and even things like swimming, uh, even though because of the power of the NBC network and the fact that the Americans in particular, their women were going to do so well, they managed to change and flip the schedule so that the finals were in the morning, which was prime time in the States. But, you know, a lot of people weren't able to go to work in Australia. So had it been um, a normal life uh, ex um, situation, uh, those people would have come home at the end of the night and watched highlights, but they were able to sit there and, and watch the likes of Emma McKeon create history um, because of the fact they were in lockdown. It's not the sort of thing that you you want to ever happen again, but you're quite right. This is a unique games, and because of time zone and because of the fact that people had so much opportunity to switch on the television and watch these athletes... I think in some ways more memories will have been created in people's minds about Olympic performance than perhaps in games previously except for Sydney. Yeah, Glenn, one of my favourite moments of the games, or well, it's not actually a particular moment, but just the, I think there was a lot of joy from the competitors this time around just for the fact that they were able to be there and competing. Um, I was just wondering what one of your sort of favourite takeaway moments. It's not necessarily performance-related. I think one of the great things was looking at the, the new sports that had come in and the camaraderie amongst them. Maybe it was because they were so young, um, but the reaction to the skateboarding and also to the BMX freestyle. I mean, the way they got around each other, uh, there was a young Japanese girl. When I say young, I mean, they were picking up medals, some of them at 12 and 13 years of age, but she had a fall. Uh, and the way they got around her, and actually a couple of them, including one of the Australian uh, competitors actually lifted her up on their shoulders and walked her along the, the top of the uh, the apron, if you like, where they dropped down to actually compete. Um, I don't know whether it was because of their age um, and perhaps they they aren't um, as focused or greedy is not the right word. But you know, when athletes get into their twenty five, you know, twenty five, twenty six years of age, the focus is quite incredible there, and often it can be a little bit blinkered. But I thought that was really heartwarming to see the way that the youngsters reacted to their competitors that actually had a bad run. Uh, it's not the sort of thing that you're used to seeing at Olympic competition. Uh, before we look at the Paralympics, Glenn, I just wanted to ask you about the Channel 7's coverage. It's, it's received a lot of praise, and rightfully so, uh, given that uh, most of the commentary was done offshore. It was done mm. back in Australia. Phil Liggett, for instance, was commentating the cycling near London. Uh, you know, so it is a hard thing to do to commentate Olympic Games when you're back in Australia and when the event is taking place elsewhere, having done it myself. 
No doubt about that, Tim. I mean, I was, I was lucky that the four games I went to, I was at the venue, but you were at the ABC beyond my time. And, of course, you know, when the ABC covered Rio, there was only three commentators that went across and every, the, a lot of the other sports were, were commentated out of Sydney. It is, a, it is a very difficult thing to do. Luckily, they had some very experienced broadcasters, the likes of Phil Liggett and, and Bruce McAvaney. But I think one of the great things now, too, that in the past – Television networks have been between a rock and a hard place because, you know, if you go back, you know, only as recently as sort of Sydney and Athens, you only had the main television station, Channel 7. But to have that ability through 7 Plus to be able to put up every single sport. So if you didn't care about any other sport except for water polo and you're a water polo tragic – you could watch every game that was played, and it made it easier for Seven. I know they still copped a little bit of flack when the Matildas weren't on their primetime station when when they were going for their um, bronze medal, but at least nowadays technology has this great way that if you just happen to be locked onto one sport and one sport interests you, you have the ability to watch it from start to finish, and if there's 56 games in water polo, you can watch every single one of them, which is something that has never, ever been able to happen before. So that will be something we'll see into the future and that will enhance people's enjoyment of watching the Olympic Games. Yeah, I totally agree with that, Glenn. I found it uh, great that I was able to watch a, a whole heap of different sports that I wouldn't normally get the opportunity to see. So I think that was a, a real key point there and looking forward to many future games that have that same uh, capability as well. Um, you know, obviously where the Olympics closing ceremony has just occurred and we're looking forward now to the Paralympic Games. Uh, how, how do you think we're shaping up uh, in regards to that? Well, I can honestly say that I don't follow Paralympic sport to the same level as able-bodied sport, but I just know that we have this incredible heritage. I was very fortunate to commentate the Atlanta and Sydney Paralympic Games for the ABC, and my wife, Karen Tyers, had a very heavily heavy involvement, whether it be with um, summer or winter Paralympics during her time with the national broadcaster. And uh, I think it just throws up some great stories. And it always throws up outstanding performances by Australia. We were even better than our Olympic team in Rio. I think we finished 10th in Rio. We finished fifth on the Paralympic medal count. One thing I will say when people watch it, though, and, and this was brought to my attention, it's something that I've always remembered, Patria, from the very first time I covered Paralympic sport in Atlanta. And one of the athletes actually took me aside quite politely and after I'd said something and said, um, just excuse me, we are not uh, disabled athletes. We are athletes with a disability. And I think as time's gone by, with the likes of Dylan Orcott and people like that, Louise Savage, Priya Cooper in the pool, we are starting now to change our view and looking at athletes, but they happen to have a disability. In years gone by, it was, oh, they're disabled athletes, and the disability was the thing that we saw first. Nowadays, we see athletic prowess first, and the fact that they have a disability is a secondary thing. And that's why I think nowadays the, the Paralympic sport is actually gaining in popularity in Australia because people are looking at the brilliant athletic performance first and then to a lesser degree, oh, yes, they happen to be in a wheelchair or, you know, they, they happen to have cerebral palsy, but they're, they're, they're outstanding swimmers. So I think there's been a real change in the psyche in regard to how Australian people actually view Paralympians and what they're doing. Yes, yeah, so I'm looking forward to a couple of 
athletes in particular, Michael Rozier running in the marathon. Um, you've got Chad Perris in the 100 and 200. Um, you've also got Ellie Cole in the pool. Um, Ellie Cole seems to be the face of the, the Paralympics at the mm. moment, doesn't she? Uh, and Patria, I know you've, you've had a bit to do with Ellie and an incredible performer. Yeah, it's great when you, um, you know, you get to see some of these journeys close up mm. and you see what these athletes go through to get to where they have. It's, you know, some of them are faced with some pretty immense challenges to overcome just to keep living and, and functioning properly, let alone excelling in their sport. So it's, I find it very inspirational and it and really reminds you to reflect on your own journey and not to feel sorry for yourself at times as well. Yeah. I think one of the highlights, uh, just going back to something Glenn said just a moment ago, the sportsmanship that's been shown at the Olympic Games uh, you know, is just something I guess we haven't seen a lot of. Uh, we do see mm. a, a lot of football codes in particular in Australia and cricket. Uh, we, we often don't see the same level of sportsmanship, I don't think, that we've seen at these Olympic Games. But the two high jumpers in the men's uh, agreeing to, to jointly share the gold medal and being so mm-hmm. happy at being able to share it. You know, they're the sort of takeaways for me. I just think that um, it really has, I, I guess to a certain degree, reinforced what, what is good about sport. And I'm sure it's going to continue at the Paralympics because the Paralympics even take it a step further, don't they? they they're very embracing of each other in terms of their own performance as well as the performances of those around them. Yeah, I think the uh, the uh, the sportsmanship, I think you've really nailed it there. That's what I've loved about certainly watching the Olympics um, is that um, they're all, in the majority of cases, the competitors are very supportive of each other, no matter which way the result goes. They, you know, they give each other a pat on the back at the end end of the race and, and, and celebrate that they've just been there yeah. and able to do what they yeah. do. So I think that's uh, it's been really special. And I think it's reminded us um, through this whole COVID situation that we're all just human and mm. we're all just out there trying to do the best we can. Yes. All right, Glenn, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, no doubt uh, life will resume back to normal now. The Olympic Games are over. Just waiting for the Paralympics to get underway. Yeah, and once they're out of the way, Tim, the good news is we've only got to wait three years for Paris. And we've got the Commonwealth Games next year and the Winter Olympics too. All right. Thanks very much for that, Glenn. Good on you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Patria. Thanks, Glenn. Bye. My name is Ben Hardy, two-time Olympian and part of the Sport Integrity Australia team. You too can be part of that team. As an athlete, practice good nutrition, check any medications, even those prescribed by your doctor, to ensure they adhere to the anti-doping regulations and work hard to be the best that you can be. If you're unsure or you need more information, you can contact us at sportintegrityaustralia.gov.au, protecting sport together. Tim Gable and Patria Thomas with you today. We've uh, had a fantastic time, Patria, talking about the Olympics and looking forward to the Paralympics now. Yeah, look, the Olympics have been great, but the show's not over yet. The right. Paralympics coming up, and I'm really excited to to watch those and and learn some of the stories, the backstories behind uh, some of these wonderful athletes that will be competing for Australia. And our next conversation is part of the Clean and Gold podcast series. We'll be looking at the Paralympics. Thanks, Patria, and uh, we'll see you soon. You've been listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Send in your podcast questions or suggestions to media at sportintegrity.gov.au. For more information on Sport Integrity Australia, please visit our website, www.sportintegrity.gov.au, or check out our Clean Sport app.